You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. That Russian crackdown on ransomware gangs people thought they were seeing hasn't happened, at least according to the FBI. The cyber partisans take a virtual whack at President Lukashenko's government in Belarus. Operation Harvest is complicated and long-running, fishing with the promise of infrastructure funding, the criminal market for bogus vaccine cards, Johannes Ulrich from SANS on dealing with image uploads, vulnerabilities in conversion libraries, our UK correspondent Carol Terrio on deep fakes, what you need to know now and a deferred prosecution agreement in a cyber-mercenary case. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman, filling in for Dave Bittner, with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. Hope that Russian authorities were cracking down on ransomware gangs has proved to be a false dawn. FBI Deputy Director Paul Abate yesterday told the Intelligence and National Security Summit what o'clock it was, and dawn is still a long way off. The Bureau has seen no evidence of Russian cooperation or unilateral action against the cyber gangs. The record quotes Abate as saying, quote, Based on what we've seen, I would say there is no indication that the Russian government has taken action to crack down on some ransomware actors that are operating in the permissive environment that they've created there. End quote. The U.S. has requested action and cooperation, but these haven't been forthcoming. Quote, I would say that nothing's changed in that regard, the deputy director added. The temporary occultation of the R-Evil gang after some high-profile ransomware attacks were followed by some direct talk from Washington to Moscow, had raised hopes in some quarters that the U.S. had succeeded in altering Russia's toleration and encouragement of privateering in cyberspace. But that appears not to have been the case. Our evil is back, and if you take the gang at its word, they were more or less just out for a smoke, and now break time is over. The U.S. is thus mulling what to do about ransomware in particular as a matter of national policy. The director, NSA, General Paul Nakasone, told the AP that, quote, even six months ago, we probably would have said, 
Ransomware, that's criminal activity. But if it has an impact on a nation like we've seen, then it becomes a national security issue. If it's a national security issue, then certainly we're going to surge toward it. End quote. The surge would involve, at the very least, increased attention to the problem and more of the familiar imposition of costs on the bad actors. While you can't shoot your way out of the problem entirely, there may be a role for more aggressive action. Bloomberg quotes the U.S. National Cyber Director Chris Inglis, also speaking at the Intelligence and National Security Summit, to the effect that, quote, There is a sense that we can perhaps fire some cyber bullets of a kind and shoot our way out of this. That will be useful in certain circumstances. If you had a clear shot at a cyber aggressor and I can take them offline, I would advise that we should do that so long as the collateral effects are acceptable, end quote. But of course, attacks against specific adversary assets in cyberspace, and with respect to ransomware, we're talking mostly about Russian assets, are unlikely to be sufficient to deter Russian leadership. Chris Inglis says, quote, There's a larger set of initiatives that have to be undertaken. Not one of those elements is going to be sufficient to take this thing out, end quote. It does, however, seem to be the case that NSA and U.S. Cyber Command are indeed contemplating a surge against ransomware in cyberspace. The Washington Post this morning reported on the fortunes of cyber partisans, a dissident hacktivist group in Belarus. The group, thought to be composed of about 15 Belarusian expatriates and believed to have the support of some dissidents within Belarus's security apparati, has been an inveterate critic of President Lukashenko's government. The cyber partisans now claim to have obtained access to recordings of more than 5 million calls, outlining repressive measures the government instituted after last year's disputed presidential election, widely believed to have been fraudulent. Evidently, the regime not only taps its own operators, but is also sufficiently leaky to have lost control of the recordings to the cyber partisans. McAfee this morning published a study of Operation Harvest, a cyber espionage campaign the researchers believe to be operated by a Chinese threat group, either APT-27, a.k.a. Emissary Panda, or APT-41, Wicked Panda or Winty, perhaps both. It's a complex and long-running effort marked by multiple privilege escalation and persistence techniques and presence in the network. The security firm Inky reports finding a new phishing campaign prompted by the recent U.S. infrastructure bill. The Hoods send a bogus email purporting to be from the U.S. Department of Transportation. The fishbait says, essentially, that since a trillion bucks and change is about to flow from the government to those savvy enough to position themselves for it, you too, recipient, should ring the bell on that gravy train. Basically, the crooks are after Microsoft credentials— and their approach is direct, simple-minded, and, alas, all too likely to persuade them unwary. The email simply says, U.S. dot, that is, the U.S. Department of Transportation, invites your business to submit bids for the department's projects, followed by a big blue click here button. It continues, quotes will be submitted online in the bid system after signing in. Experienced textual critics of U.S. government requests for proposals will be moved to skepticism, but those unused to government work might bite on that fishbait. As vaccine mandates are planned and brought into effect, the criminal market for bogus vaccine passports has surged, 
with the new policy-driven demand, security firm Checkpoint reports. The key conclusions that they reached in their study are that the criminal market for fake vaccine certificates has expanded globally to 28 countries. The most recent additions are Austria, Brazil, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Portugal, Singapore, Thailand, and the UAE. On August 10th, Checkpoint had identified about 1,000 vendors of phony certificates operating on Telegram. That number has now swollen by an order of magnitude, with more than 10,000 hoods now hawking bogus vaccine passports. Demand is driving up prices. They currently range from about 85 to 200 USD per document. Since President Biden began talking about a vaccine mandate, the value of a U.S. card has doubled from 100 to 200 USD. As a general rule, Checkpoint thinks everyone should be aware that genuine vaccination certificates aren't sold over the internet. As their report puts it, As a general statement, genuine health-related certificates are not sold over the internet. Anybody who is offering to sell such documents over the internet are clearly doing so illegally. We recommend people not engage with sellers publishing on such groups or marketplaces anywhere across the web. And insofar as it makes sense to talk about price gouging in a criminal market, dog bites man, crooks are greedy. And finally, the U.S. Department of Justice has reached a deferred prosecution agreement with three former intelligence and military personnel who provided services to the UAE that violated export and commuter abuse laws in the course of work they undertook on behalf of the UAE. Quote, On September 7th, U.S. citizens Mark Beyer, 49, and Ryan Adams, 34, and a former U.S. citizen Daniel Garricky, 40, all former employees of the U.S. intelligence community, or the U.S. military, entered into a deferred prosecution agreement that restricts their future activities and employment and requires the payment of $1,685,000 USD in penalties to resolve a Department of Justice investigation regarding violations of U.S. export control, computer fraud, and access device fraud laws. The department filed the deferred prosecution agreement today, along with criminal information alleging that the defendants conspired to violate such laws. End quote. There are plenty of legitimate ways of doing business abroad, with not only the permission, but with the positive encouragement of U.S. law. But providing unlicensed export-controlled defense services in support of computer network exploitation in a commercial company creating, supporting, and operating systems specifically designed to allow others to access data without authorization from computers worldwide, including in the United States, would not be among them. The Emirati company that hired them was identified by the New York Times as Dark Matter. The three gentlemen who reached the agreement must pay almost 7 million USD and forego the opportunity to ever receive a security clearance. They also agreed to keep their noses clean and cooperate with investigators for the next three years. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. In Nina Schick's book on deep fakes, she writes that the rapid rate of change has made our information ecosystem ripe for exploitation. Increasingly, bad actors ranging from the nation states to lone influencers are using this new set of circumstances to spread disinformation or information that is meant to mislead. And she says compounding this issue with the fact that we're still in the foothills of the AI revolution is going to lead to a further evolution of our information ecosystem. And that's where the idea of deep fakes come in. Where are we at with them? They became a thing a few years ago. But they keep bobbing in and out of the press as though there's something nebulous about them. I asked Javad Malik, he's a security guru at No Before, what his view on deepfakes, here's what he had to say. I think from, from deepfakes' point of view, there's two use cases that I think we're going to see more of, which is quite frightening. One is where they're using a layered attack. And by that, I mean is where you might get a text message and to reinforce that, you'll get a, an email. And then to reinforce it, you'll see a deepfake video. I might send you a WhatsApp message saying, hey, Corral, check check out this video. And then I'll email you say, did you did you check your phone? Check that out. And then I might text you to get your notice. Right. And then because you, you're receiving the same message on multiple platforms, it becomes far more uh, believable. Mm. And you're more likely to get sucked into it because you're like, well, if these people believe it, then it must be true. In a layered attack, it's, it, we're going to see more use of that. The second part is really in misinformation and disinformation campaigns. The truth is kind of like on one end and complete falsehood is mm. on the other end. It's the gray area in between that a lot of people are 
always on the fence about they 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 can they can be shifted one way or another and and mm. the deep fakes they're very good when they're used sparingly in small amounts just to mix in the right amount of doubt into something to cause you to question the validity of something so um they're sneaky exactly you just just the right amount you you just sneaky exactly that's that's the perfect term and what it does is it's just enough to sow those seeds of doubt into it just to get you thinking well you know maybe you know the government is doing this maybe the dvla is after us like this maybe you know it, it, there's all these kinds mm -hmm. of uh, little things that you can do and by that what you create is dissent because you divide people's opinions and the small changes or small difference of opinion can have really big impacts very quickly and that's where deep fakes will probably be really impactful. I think he's right. I think it is the people that are in the middle that aren't strongly attached to one view or another that are probably most vulnerable in this situation. So those of us that consider ourselves in the gray area, maybe continue to exercise extra vigilance out there. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberware. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, I can't help but thinking about images as being benign. And I know I, I should have shed that assumption you know, long ago, but it's still hard for me to think of something like a good old JPEG or a, or a GIF image as being anything but just what it is, just an image. But that's not the case anymore. And you wanted to share some some work that you and your colleagues have been doing when it comes to uh, vulnerabilities in conversion libraries. What's going on here? Yeah, Dave, uh, thanks for having me again. And uh, this is really sort of one of those off-overlooked things. It's actually not really new by any means, uh, but images can be code in some cases. But the main problem with images is that, first of all, there are so many formats and subformats. So you typically have to deal with dozens or so of uh, different formats and the respective uh, conversion libraries. And then images are most of the time compressed. And mm. it turns out that whenever you deal with compressed data, it becomes a little bit difficult uh, to allocate the correct amount of memory. And that's how you end up with your classic uh, buffer overflow then. And that's what often happens with these libraries. Now, where this really comes to play is if you are accepting image uploads, for example. So a lot of web applications 
allow customers, for example, to upload images, or you have uh, web applications where you allow, for example, PDFs to be uploaded, which uh, have uh, similar issues, maybe uh, even more so than your plain images. And you have to then display them back either to an administrator that vets these images or to other users, for example, as part of a product review or whatever feature you have on your site that does allow users to upload images. And so what's the potential problem here? Probably the most obvious problem is what if you have a malicious file uh, like a PDF? That's probably what people are most familiar with. And now an unsuspecting user is looking at the PDF and is getting exploited. Well, um, there's a way to prevent this. And Hmm. uh, one common technique that... uh, developers have used in the past in order uh, to prevent uh, exposing their users to malicious content is they convert those images or files. So for example, for a PDF, uh, you can convert them to PostScript. And then back to PDF, there's a special version of PDF, a PDF slash A, that avoids a lot of uh, the problems. But what you're doing then, and uh, many people are not really aware of, you're really sort of moving the problem from the user to your server. Basically, who do you want to rather have hit by malicious code? Is it your user (laughs) browsing your website or is it your server? As a developer, well, uh, let's go for the user, bud. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. uh, Depending on uh, who you're talking to and what day of the week it is, you might get a different answer on that, right? (laughs) Correct, yes. And so uh, that's... uh, Also, like if you want to, for example, change the resolution, change the size of an image, there is a very popular open source library called Image Magic uh, to do this with. And it had a number of issues. And and just recently, again, uh, that uh, allowed an attacker to trigger uh, code execution on the server as the image uh, is reformatted. Hmm. So what are your recommendations here then? I mean, is this a situation where, you know, the, the software package you were just talking about, has that been updated? Has it been patched? Is, it, is this a matter of, uh, you know, trusting your third-party code? It is a little bit a matter of third-party code and trusting basically those libraries. The latest vulnerability here, which was GhostScript vulnerability here in ImageMagic, I'm not 100% sure that it has been fixed yet, but it was not fixed when the vulnerability was first announced, and it's also a relatively easy to exploit vulnerability. So you always have this window and how fast can you patch all of this stuff? That's also another uh, problem mm. here. Very common mitigation technique here is really just assuming that stuff will go wrong. You know, stuff happens as so often in uh, IT and uh, isolate the process. Uh, Run the conversion in something like a Docker container, virtual machine, uh, whatever uh, works for you. Something that you can easily reset after uh, the conversion happens. So whatever exploit may have happened there is not going to leak any confidential data, it's not going to be persistent. And with that, you at least sort of limit the impact of any vulnerability like that. All right. Well, interesting stuff. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and security leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, 
sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Brandon Karp, Trey Hester, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Dave Bittner, and I'm Elliot Peltzman. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.